Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative Conversations, Exploring Overshoot, Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, and I'm your host. And in this episode, I speak with my dear friend and colleague, Dar Jamel, who is not only an award-winning journalist, but I consider him a modern-day prophet. Not a prophet as somebody predicting the future or channeling an otherworldly entity, but somebody who sees what's real and what's emerging, and then gives voice to reality in a compassionate and authoritative way. It begins with three previews. We, we know what we need to know. We are in post-doom, and, and it's how are we going to be during this time now. It's I, I, I've decided to step away from doing the big data dumps, even in my talks, because every time I've done those, it's felt like I've given a pint of plasma, and I'm sure the audience probably feels like they get hit with a baseball bat. And I think it's a, just a lot more beneficial and helpful for us to do have conversations like this preview two we've never been here before as a species you know i mean certainly indigenous people have gone through yes genocide and the loss of everything that they know and and you know that obviously is a place worth exploring to finding i think more specific words and descriptors of of what we're in because now that reckoning is upon all of us, not just the uh, um, poor people and the people who've had genocides committed against them. Preview three. Each one of us needs to really get quiet and really listen humbly and see what comes up and then follow that. And in that way, Earth is the great organizer, right? It's not you, it's not me, it's not out there, but it's literally coming up through us, each one of us, and we're all going to get our own custom-made individual marching orders and to really listen and find ways to listen. I do it mostly in nature. Some people might do it meditating. Other people, it might come to them when they're painting. However you listen, really listen and then get that and then commit your life fully regardless of the risk to doing that, you know, and that's the other thing is do what we're told right if we're being told that from the earth or however you want to phrase that then once you get that download or that upload do what you're told the conversation begins well dar it's good to see you in this format we were just together last month when i was over in port townsend and uh got a chance to do a good long walk and i'm glad that you could that you were willing and and uh able to be a part of this podcast series because there's just been so many amazing interviews that you've participated in and um, and that you've occasionally sent me the link to that really are great. And so uh, I hope you don't feel this is redundant, but the questions that I want to go in with you here are ones that really have to do with sharing your story, your journey, and all that sort of thing. So at any rate, welcome to uh, this post-Doom conversation series. 
Well, thank you, Michael. And it's it's good. And we've we've been trying to set this up for a while. I'm glad that we're finally here. And I, I, I have done a lot of interviews, especially because of the book, but I, I, I feel like this one will be uh, probably exploring some new territories. I look forward to it. Cool, cool. Yeah, well, I think you already know this, but I'll spell it out anyway, that your dispatches, and then yours and Barbara's truth out essays, and then your book, um, but especially the truth out essays, because there you got into a lot more of the heart stuff. I mean, you did some in your book as well, especially uh, toward the end, but, but you and Barbara, Jem Bendel, Catherine Ingram, and uh, Paul Chaferka were probably the, the major people that really spawned, uh, that sparked this conversation series. Um, and so deep bow of gratitude to you for- Well, I'm, I'm honored, Michael, thank you. Cool. So Dar, there are gonna be some people that are gonna watch this or listen to this and uh, not be familiar with you yet. So rather than me trying to prepare a formal bio, if you could just take a few minutes and just help folk get you, help, you know, like what are you known for? What are you passionate about? So obviously it says something about your book and your tour, but just help, help those who don't yet know you or haven't read you sort of to get you. Sure, I'll, and I'll be brief. Um, I was living in Alaska working as a mountain guide and then volunteer rescue ranger on Denali leading up to the Iraq war in 2003 was like probably everybody watching this completely troubled and dismayed and horrified about what I was seeing. And so I sent myself to Iraq to write about what was happening, uh, how the Iraqi people were being affected. And so uh, that launched a career in journalism that went 16 years around 2010, I shifted to mental and climate change journalism and started writing about the crisis. And then it was really a few years into that, that I really got, okay, we are off the cliff. We are going into an extremely intense time and it's only going to intensify. And uh, I then around, and it was right around that time in 2000, uh, late 2013, early 2014, I started writing climate disruption dispatches every month for Truth Out. And over the next five years, I penned about 60 of those because it was one a month. And they were really intense overviews of here's what's happened in the last 30 days of basically the climate catastrophe. You became, for many of us, I'll speak just for myself, you became probably the major source for several years of sort of staying up with not the human to human news, but the human to primary reality news. Yeah, they did become a really important resource for a lot of people. And then that formed the basis of most of my research for my book, which the end of ice, which I basically went out to a lot of the frontline places like the Amazon and the Great Barrier Reef and South Florida for sea level rise and Alaska uh, to write about with scientists how far along we already are. And that book came out this January. It's, it's been making some waves. And, um, uh, and then now, but I found it necessary to step out of journalism because, and that's kind of where talking to you comes in where, and I, I know that we're in alignment on this from previous conversations where, okay, we, we, we know what we need to know. We are in post-doom and, and it's how are we going to be during this time now? It's I, I, I've decided to step away from doing the big data dumps, even in my talks, because every time I've done those, it's felt like I've given a pint of plasma and I'm sure the audience probably feels like they get hit with a baseball bat. And I think it's a, just a lot more 
beneficial and helpful for us to do have conversations like this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been telling people now for several months that if you only read one book on climate change, make it your book. Um, wow, thank you. And just because you bring so much from so many fields, it's not, I mean, you go to places where it isn't just about the ice, even though the, the end of ice is, is the title, but you also bring, in my experience, such humility and such, um, it's rare that a journalist exposes his heart in the way that you did and, um, and do in your interviews. Uh, so anybody watching or listening to this, check, definitely check out some of the other interviews and podcasts that Dar has been on, because each one is different. And, and I, I greatly value your ability to speak from the heart with facts, but it's, it's not like you're trying, there's not this urgency to try to get people to change with, with all this sort of sense of, because there are certain tipping points, you know, it's, we're in the Wiley key, Wiley E coyote moment. We're off the cliff, as you just said. And um, it's, it's now a matter of preparing our hearts, our families, our communities, um, our relationships um, and doing the spiritual practice um, with what nourishes humans at all times in contracting, collapsing times. We're in that. And we're in the big one because it's global and because it could potentially lead um, to fairly near-term extinction. And that's really scary stuff for people to contemplate. So, Dar, what about just the language? I'm using post-doom, but any language that you, know, that you found helpful in talking about these contracting or deteriorating or collapsing times? That's a good question, and it's an important one. There's words don't exist to really adequately describe a lot of it. Um, like one experience I've been having is when I go out into the mountains now, and I just experienced it up in Alaska again, where this simultaneous, on, on, at, at one moment, in awe and full of gratitude for this beauty. Look at these mountains, the snow, this amazing, the energy in this land. And simultaneously, this this heartbreak and and it's, it's this bittersweetness of yes. And I was giving a talk in Anchorage, Alaska, on November twentieth, when it should have been in the teens. It was like spring breakup. And uh, so, what is a word that encompasses all of that? You know, it's like we need new words. And and I think I mean I post doom, uh, like post acceptance. Um, um, things like this I found helpful of, um, here we are, like on this planet that we know huge parts of the biosphere are dying in front of our face and we're still here and there's all this beauty and there is this enlightenment happening, you know, so what, where are words for, for that? We've never been here before as a species, you know, I mean, certainly indigenous people have gone through yes. genocide and the loss of everything that they know. And, and, you know, that obviously is a place worth exploring to finding, I think, more specific words and descriptors of, of what we're in, because now that reckoning is upon all of us, not just the uh, um, poor people and the people who've had genocides committed against them. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading something just two or three weeks ago that was talking about how the apocalypse uh, is always in the future. And this article was like, well, from the perspective of indigenous peoples of the world, people who have lived in a love relationship and treated primary reality as primary, not as a lesser it, but a greater thou, the apocalypse began eight to 10,000 years ago for most of these folks, or at least for many of them. And it just, it grew as 
anthropocentric humanity and uh, um, rather than ecocentric or life-centered humanity um, took over the world. So Dar, one of the things that I know that you know more about than most people that have written about it is the difference between climate change understood in a linear process and abrupt climate change. So just say a little bit about the difference between climate change and abrupt climate change. Right. I have my book right here. I'm going to read. Um, that's a great question. And I'm going to read what I feel like is one of the most important scientific lines out of the book for people to understand as an answer to that question. So I was hanging out with Dan Fagri, he, who's a USGS scientist at Glacier National Park. And I asked him, you know, he shared some pretty devastating things like the summer I was with him was when he made international headlines by saying, yeah, there's probably not going to be any glaciers left in Glacier National Park by 2030. And I said, well, is that what really keeps you up at night? And he says, uh, talking about the climate crisis in general, he says, these are nonlinear changes that are not based on a simple proportional relationship between cause and effect. They are usually abrupt, unexpected, and challenging to predict. So for people who think, oh yeah, we've still got another 20 years or 30 or 40 years of Arctic summer sea ice. No, they are usually abrupt, unexpected, and challenging to predict. And then, and then he said this line, he said, quote, the aggregate of multiple nonlinear changes is enormous in orders of magnitude. And that's what keeps me worried at nights. So it's the aggregate of these nonlinear changes that are not based on proportional relationship between cause and effect that are usually abrupt, unexpected, and challenging to predict. That's what keeps him up at night. Yeah. And I think any climate scientist soberly analyzing the big picture, not just whatever their one area of expertise is, that's what they worry about. And that's yeah. why you hear Dr. Thomas Lovejoy talking about these tipping points in the Amazon. It's not like, oh, it's just going to keep degrading over time. It's like each of these systems, whether it's biodiversity or insects or the Arctic sea ice or land-based glaciers, they hit these tipping points and then they just go. Yep. And that's what's really important for people to understand. Look at Australia right now as we speak. Melting on Greenland last year and a study comes out literally in the last two days while we're talking, showing that there's been, I think, a seven-fold increase in melting since just the 1990s. Yeah. These are these examples right in front of our faces of exactly what we just talked about. Exactly. And, and people really need to try to get their heads around that. Yeah, I, I heard it described once that abrupt climate change is like 10,000 years of climate change in a human lifetime. Perfect, right. And that's another thing that we talk about. I was just having coffee with a friend earlier and talking about the changes we're seeing right here in the Olympics. And I said, you know, I've, I've been here five years and I've seen dramatic changes in five years. So literally geologic scale changes happening, not just in human lifetimes, but in half a decade. Exactly. That's what people really need to understand and, and how absolutely insane that is. Yeah. And it when you get that, there's a humility that comes in its wake, which is that there are systems that are already out of our control and when we speak as if we are human um, that human agency is omnipotent that right. if we decide to keep it to one and a half well we can if we just get the right political you know that the, the humility of that there are systems that are already out of our control and we might be able to cushion 
in some way, but we might not be able to, and let's live with that. Or another one-liner on that front to underscore what you just said, Dr. Harold Wanless, University of Miami, sea level rise expert, says, you know, he, what he says to people who says, oh, we can change this, we can reverse it, whatever, 93.4% uh, of all the heat humans have added to the atmosphere has been absorbed into the oceans. Half of that since 1997. How are you going to get that heat out of the oceans? Exactly. It's done. Yes. Yes. And, and, and we need to understand that, not to scare people, not to floor people, right. but let's have a sober analysis of where we are. Then we can make our decisions from that place. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, take as long as you'd like and share your story, your journey, how you, um, how you came to accept that things are not permanently progressing. Um, how you got climate uh, and other aspects of ecological overshoot, of which climate is is but uh, the, perhaps the most severe, but not the only symptom. Um, and just share as much as you want, especially because, as I often say in these in this series, every season from here on out, I imagine several million more people being ready for this kind of conversation than were last season. They've moved out of either denial or in some cases functional denial, which is they're not really in denial, but they don't want to think about it because there's nothing we can do about it kind of thing. But then they're ready for a deeper conversation. And so anything that your life story can be enlightening or helpful or supportive, oftentimes people who we admire as authors uh, or as contributors in some way, and then we, we learn of their struggles with depression or this or that can be hugely um, empowering because the person realizes, oh my God, I'm not alone. Even this person who I hold in highest esteem has struggled with this, that, or the other thing. So feel free to take as long as you like, but please share your journey, your story. Well, it, um, it's in progress. Like I, I, I've part of that journey and I'll, I'm going to start at the present and then kind of go backwards and go at least somewhat linearly. But, um, it's in progress and it's never going to stop. And I've had to accept that because there's still some days I'm just flat out depressed yes, exactly. and like really depressed. And then, and then there's other days where I'm like really alive and there's stuff to do and I have my projects and, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm really, and I get to go out into the mountains and, and talk with people about what's happening. And, you know, so it's, it's just this ongoing journey and I'm learning and literally just in the last couple of days I've had, some understandings of that's help that will help me answer this question today and and um so in 1996 i moved to alaska just to mountain climb and so i immediately was smacked in the face with receding glaciers and already dramatically altered climate patterns up there and uh so that was always there in the back of my mind and then as i got into journalism seven years later. Uh, I always knew I would want to come back and write about that. And then in 2010, when I did and started really getting the data and, and searching out the studies and really getting, oh boy, this we are full on. I've heard people warning about this and talking about it for a long time. And now that I'm really looking it up myself, I get it. And then um, I... As that went on for a few years, and then I had a moment where I really, you know, as I, I know you and other people watching this do, 
you just keep getting it on a deeper and deeper level. And that's another part of the process that for me doesn't stop. You know, I don't ever, there's not a finish line. And, and I literally had what I, I, one friend I heard referred to it as a fetal position moment where like, I really get it and literally getting on laying down on a couch and just like, Oh my God, Oh my God, look at, look at this situation. And, um, and then from, it wasn't that long after that, that I came up with the idea for, I didn't come up with the idea came to me for the end of ice. And so the book, I feel like really accelerated my process in that I got to go to the great barrier reef with scientists. I got to go to the Amazon with Thomas Lovejoy. I got to go back up Denali. I got to go hang out with glaciologists in Glacier National Park. So I went to a lot of these frontline places and see it with my own eyes and feel it in my body with scientists really getting deeply. It's happening. It's accelerating. It's not going to stop. We're gonna, here's what we're going to, we're going to lose all the coral reefs. We're going to lose all the glaciers. It's only a question of when specifically and really getting that and that also accelerated my grieving process yes, yes. and acceptance and more grieving and yeah. more understanding and and i feel like it's just been this tremendous gift to me and also humbling because even with that you know granted this is a process that i could say arguably started in 1996 and then even with the book and getting to go out with some of the leading climate scientists on the planet and i still struggle like I still watch myself, you know, like having days or, or not days, but times when I kind of forget, you know, like, yeah. you know, what's going on um, because of our proximity and being embedded within, I, I often call it the matrix or, or you know, the dominant culture or uh, runaway industrialization, whatever you want to call it. And so it's just been this long process. Um, and then, you know, one of the things I, I realized very recently was by my, one of the silver lining, one of the silver lines in my time reporting from Iraq was the horrific things that I saw and reported on over there. I got to see firsthand the links that the dominant culture is willing to go to, to perpetuate itself, to maintain power and expand power. They were willing to annihilate a country of 27 million people and look at it today, it's burning, it's embers, it's smoking, it's a failed state and it probably always will be. And, and that's 27 million people. So when it comes down to generating profit and maintaining power, of course, the CEOs of these major companies that are culpable and then their politician lobbyists uh, are they are, they're doing the same thing to the entire planet, you know, and, and it's what Native American scholar Jack Forbes has written about the Waitiko disease, cannibalism disease, where it's literally a psychopathology that if you have it, you feel like it's okay to take another person's life or resources for your own benefit. And so I've seen that firsthand in Iraq and, and seen the barbarism and the violence and the links that those infected with Waitiko are willing to go to. So in that sense, you know, I've had a taste of what indigenous people or other groups that have been trampled upon by empires have gotten to taste. And I've gotten to see that firsthand, the blood, the stench of the dead bodies, everything. 
And I think that's really helped accelerate my understanding of, well, of course they're willing to take down the entire planet. And now, now we are living, that reckoning is upon all of us, even those of us in privileged Western middle-class society. Um, and, and, and so that lands me here today where uh, I, do, I do know that I get in my bones that we, you know, we, we have set in motion forces that we, we can't get this genie back in the bottle. And um, our own species may go extinct, extinct because of it. We don't know for sure, but it's, it's hard to see that not happening. And over probably a shorter timeline than the millions of years. And, uh, and, and yet here we are, and I, I keep looking out my window at these trees, which I do to kind of like get recenter myself and, and they're still here and there's other species. And we, here we are with our moral obligations to continue to do the right thing, regardless of how bleak everything is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was great. You know, I'm wondering, I, I, in preparing for this conversation, I've been actually more than that for the last couple of weeks, I've been like thinking a lot about the parallels or the similarities between um, an alcoholic or an addict in uh, that isn't, that hasn't hit bottom, that isn't, isn't on a recovery path. Um, and usually what's required is a hitting bottom of one sort or another. And so I'm just wondering if you thought about sort of humanity's relationship uh, through the lens of, of recovery, or is that just not a metaphor that you've done? No, I, I do use that analogy often because I, I think it's very accurate. I mean, I think, uh, and, you know, the bottom line is most, most alcoholics and addicts never hit bottom in a way that they ever actually recover. Most of them die or get locked up or wither away in some miserable, demented life and then die. And, you know, part of me for a while, I, I, I was like waiting for this dominant culture to hit a bottom, but I don't think it's going to, you know, right. I mean, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and this has been going on now for thousands of years. And, and yet here we are at this bitter end. It really is runaway, waitico, consuming all that's left on the planet. I mean, you know, the art, the plans have already been drawn up. Here's where we're going to drill in the Arctic once the sea ice is gone. I mean, this is going to go, yeah. it's hard for me not to envision this going Mad Max is another way to put it. You know, it's really looking grim and I keep waiting for this dominant culture to collapse under its own weight or implode. But you know, I talked to some of my indigenous friends and they're like, welcome to our world, buddy. We've been waiting for that for thousands of years. And yeah, no, it's exactly. really intense now. And clearly, you know, parts of the planet are giving way and succumbing and species are going away. And, you know, it, it absolutely, you know, there's now already parts of the planet that were formerly habitable that are now not. Um, and so I have, I've had to stop waiting for some sort of it's 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 gonna go as long as they're in power and, and as long as they have the means and, and the control and keep generating profits like this is going to keep going and i think that's part for me that i've realized recently i have to accept that that you know there's not going to be the great justice you know the injustices are going to continue and and that's part of i think what i've had to do to assimilate to try to accept okay, how am I going to be 
And, you know, it's part of that disappointment and the crushing, the overwhelming uh, sadness and anger. And, and, you know, because I'm, I'm a fighter. I mean, that's why I went into Iraq. Like, I, I, I'm willing to put my ass on the line for what I believe in regularly. Um, but does it make sense to go do that in front of a machine that is not going to stop and there's no way it's going to stop? And it, and it just comes down to that's why in the conclusion of my book, I, I really explored all these different perspectives on, you know, the Vaclav Havel quote that I include about it's, you know, hope is not doing something to get an expected result, but doing something because it's the right thing to do. And I'm paraphrasing there. Exactly. And, and then coming back to the moral obligations in indigenous cultures, which are, uh, we're born, you know, the two primary obligations that all of us have are to take care of and be good stewards of the planet and to take care of and make decisions based on what's for the betterment of all future gener the, the future generations of all species. Yeah. And when I wake up and I focus on those two things and not, oh, myself and how am I gonna, how am I doing and what do I want? But, you know, I have to be of service. And, and those, are, those are my good days when I remember to do that. And I, when I get off track and kind of sink back into a morass of self-pity or, or you know, my own fears and everything about what's happening to the planet. Um, it's just when I forget to take my eye off that ball of, forget and take my eye off the ball of, of being, of how can I serve the planet? Yeah. You know, and I think, and, and that's one thing that indigenous cultures have held on to, to, that's why they're still here. That's why they're surviving. That's why there's a revival happening of their cultures. And we're seeing it up here right in the Pacific Northwest where we are, and I know you're aware of this, and um, that, you know, and again, reframing everything to, to not have hope, and I know you've talked to other people about this, and you talk about a lot of being literally hope-free, as Stephen Jenkinson talks about, and, and I think that's just simply um, an honest, pragmatic uh, way of walking forward into this very, very broken world. Yeah, no, no exactly, well put. Is there anything that you'd like to say about the way we are as human social animals um, and the way our brains work because of millions of years of, uh, of evolution um, that either um, helps you understand the mess that we're in or in some ways provides solace or in any way informs you at this time? I do believe that humans are fundamentally good. I mean, I think it's the odd aberration where maybe someone's born and and there's pathology and and sickness and you know they that they're fundamentally not good um but yeah, i think one i think something like one or two percent of the human population are born without the mental ability to feel empathy and compassion so okay. that makes a lot of sociopaths and psychopaths out there right so that's quite a few but but they're a distinct small minority correct so, so the majority of people are fundamentally good. And, you know, you hear a lot, you know, in, in discussions in this theme of what's happening on the planet, like, oh, well, humans will go extinct, you know, whatever, you know, will the earth will continue on. And it's like, well, no, um, before industrialization, you know, we, we, we now have recent studies that show uh, Aboriginal in Australia that were there for probably 120,000 years. And so that, and then we, we move over to Turtle Island here and we have, 
you know, carbon dating going back at least 16,000 years in some areas. So for all those millennia up until the advent of industrialization, um, they, those people didn't wipe out the planet. You know, they, they found out by and large how to live in harmony and took care of themselves and were stewards of the earth and future generations. So industrialization comes along and then, you know, ramp up now to the, the late 1900s, early 2000s, total unregulated everything, runaway way Tico. Um, and here we are. And so that's not because we as a species are fundamentally flawed. It's exactly. because a select few minority got in power and, and maybe it's a lot of those 1% you just pointed out are those in power. And I think you can look at these people and see clearly some of these people, they have no capacity for empathy. They have, you know, they, they, you do the checklist of what is a psychopath for corporations and these people are just literally exactly. acting on behalf of corporations. Exactly. So of course they're going to have those same psychopathic uh, psychological characteristics. And so I, I, but that helps me just to remember that uh, people aren't fundamentally bad that this minority group has taken control and now here's still the rest of us out there. And I, I know for a fact there are tens of millions of people out there, if not more than that, uh, working for the betterment of the planet and that includes other human beings and other species. And so that's, I, I, I just have to remember that so as not to spin out in my own cynicism. Have you found the epic of evolution or the universe story or big history or as it's sometimes called or green history? Have you, has that informed you at all? Have you found that helpful at all? I mean, one of the quotes that I have from Joanna Macy that's, um, you know, fairly well known. She says, there is science now to construct the story of the journey that we've made on this earth. The story that connects us with all beings. Right now, we need to remember that story, to harvest it and to taste it. For we are in a hard time. And it's the knowledge of the bigger story that can carry us through. So has that been true for you or is that just not something you pay attention to a whole lot? Um, I, as, as you know, and as we've talked about at other times, um, you know, I, my next book's going to be on indigenous perspective on the climate crisis and I'm co-authoring it with a native American teacher. And, um, so that's really become my primary focus. Yeah. And, and I'm starting, I mean, on an increasing basis, looking through those lenses at, at the world. And as I learn more about uh, those perspectives, that's more how I see things. Yeah. And so, you know, the earth as mother earth and yes. all of the four directions and father sky and the star people and the way that I pray and the way that I perceive and all of that becoming more and more uh one thing and um so it's that you know and there's obviously you know really dramatic crossover between those perspectives and what joanna macy has been teaching for decades and i know she pulls a lot of her her knowledge and teaching from indigenous perspectives as well and it's that you know gaia the earth as uh, a, a living being that has given birth to all of us and sustains and supports us and really looking at everything through that lens. And that, you know, and another big piece of that is, is the energetics, 
you know, and I've gotten increasingly sensitive to those um, by working in my book and going out into these places and being, you can literally feel when a place is in distress versus when a place is in less distress. I mean, everywhere is in distress now, but some much more so than others and getting really, really tuned into that and, yeah. and, uh, and paying attention to that and, and really learning a lot more to um, use all of my senses as well as how my body feels. Am I having some sort of primal response or fear or distress if I'm in a certain area? And, and usually that's directly tied to like go walk into a clear cut and see how that feels, you know, or go snorkel over the Great Barrier Reef when it's completely bleaching out as compared to going into a healthy old growth forest, you know, and really using all these senses, you know, my, my gut reaction, how my heart feels, my anxiety level, uh, as well as my intellect and my eyes and my nose and everything else, you know, all of the senses, which is also something I've been, you know, the coming more into, into closer contact with indigenous perspectives and learning about these ways as I go into this next project. It's, it's just reinforces what I think we all already know. It's just, what is that one saying? It's like a really good teacher basically just reminds you of what you already know. Mm -hmm. So I'm really having that experience. And I think yeah. that that's one that a lot of us are having that even this late in the game from a, a Western perspective of, uh, of collapse and where this is going, that that's part of this enlightenment that I think is happening with a lot of people and I've, I've been experiencing too. So, um, and that's just kind of come in. I've already, I've already had my own personal spirituality and understanding and, and way that I, I incorporate that into my life. But now with the indigenous perspective, it's, it's really come along at the right time because these are people who survived a 90% plus genocide by the most powerful country on the planet here in North America and they're still here. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, uh, they are now, as we've just seen happening over at the COP25 meeting, uh, they are forefront. People understand if we're going to get through this at all, uh, or even if we don't, the best way to be, we're, we need them to lead. And we yeah. need to, not that the onus is on them, but, uh, and not just to be allies, but one of my friends has told me, one of his indigenous friends told him, that uh, uh, they don't want allies, uh, they, they want uh, co-conspirators. Yes, exactly. So they, they want, no, they want accomplices. Oh, yes, and so when yeah. it comes to doing the work, even if that means putting our bodies on the line or breaking some laws, um, we need to all be in the trenches together. Yeah, yeah. Well, bringing up, first of all, I agree with everything you just said. And I, I'm amazed at how many Westerners to my mind, any story of the big picture that helps you fall more intimately, personally in love with the land and the soil and the forest and the water and the life upon which we and your grandchildren are going to depend is a good story. Any story that alienates or uh, uh, promotes hubris rather than humility and abstracts us or distances us from the land and the soil and the forest and the water is going to be counterproductive at best. And one of the things that I'm amazed still at how many of my Western educated friends um, and colleagues um, don't understand that language that is personal facilitates a personal relationship. 
and that gods and goddesses, for example, or spirits, nature spirits, aren't disembodied woo-woo entities. They're having, they're, they're, that's the way we have a healthy, humble relationship. So the star people means I'm going to relate to the stars with the same kind of humility and, and grace and love as I would a person, the tree people, the forest people, you know what I mean? The, it's like the idea that indigenous peoples believed in nature spirits. No, they related to reality personally in all of its elements. And there's a profound difference there. Mm -hmm. And David Abram is always uh, encouraging me to, to, you know, he, he also loves Thomas Berry. We both uh, count Thomas Berry as, as a mentor and Joanna Macy and others, but, but he's always coming back to that, like the sen sensualness of our relationship to the living world and a place-based spirituality that uh, isn't, uh, that facilitates relationship, that facilitates healthy relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Dar, anything you'd like to say about um, impermanence and death? Uh, how has mortality, the awareness of not just your own mortality, but our species mortality, how does that inform you or uh, support you in, in your life? Yeah, this, I, I feel very fortunate again through having several near-death experiences in Iraq, being shot at a couple of different times by U.S. troops and car bomb that went off in front of my hotel one time and took down parts of my room and, and then being kidnapped once, as well as a couple of near-death experiences, mountaineering, uh, I really kind of desensitized me to the fear of death. It's like, look, you know, it's, whenever it does happen, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's actually a relatively ordinary experience. I mean, it's not some frightful, um, phantasmagorical kind of thing to be wary of. Um, and then really, again, working on the book and writing so many dispatches on the climate collapse uh, has helped inform that as well in that, uh, you know, again, like what I mentioned earlier, going to these places and really feeling it in my body that when we lose these parts of the biosphere, we're literally losing parts of ourselves. you know, I mean, yes, we're exactly. all part of the earth and that's part of us and we're yes. part of that and really feeling that. And, but the thing that happened relatively recently for me that really dropped all that down to a whole new level was I've never had a real, someone I've been really, really, really close to die and nor have I sat with someone and helped them die. Yes. And I did that um, about three months ago with my best friend, Dwayne French. And he, after a long battle with cancer, uh, he died and I was there, you know, he had chemo, he had a surgery, and then he basically went into failure after the surgery. And I sat with him through that for days and then was there as he passed away. And that was a deeply profound experience. I feel very fortunate and, and humbled and grateful to have had it. And it was really in the wake of that, that really dropped me down into a place of really accepting, I think, a lot more easily my own mortality. And by watching him do that, I mean, it was a gift he gave me of just showing me how to die. And, and watching him do it, literally leaving at the exact minute that he wanted to leave, too. I mean, he had been um, unconscious for a couple of days, but um, there were several things that indicated without a shadow of a doubt, he left at precisely the moment 
that he was ready to go. And that really going through that experience, it's like hearing Stephen Jenkinson talk about death and reading his book, Die Wise and all of that. I got it intellectually, but then going through it personally, it's like, okay, now, now I understand where he's coming from, really. And, and that's really helped me understand um, what's happening on the planet. And again, here's, you know, crossover experiences where words fail, but, you know, really this deeper appreciation for life and how finite and how short it really is for us and for all species as well as then the importance of fighting protect what's here. And one, uh, one story that happened to me, um, it, it somehow relates to this. I was in a writing residency in Marfa, Texas. I had three months to just work on the introduction of my book to try to find the voice. I had no idea the voice of the book. And it was the first time I gathered all my data together. And it was, com it was another one of those, you know, curl up on the couch moments of fetal position on the couch moments like oh my god and I had a really I have a really good friend out there named Nick Terry who's a Zen teacher also and he would come over for coffee every once in a while and he came over when I was having that moment I was like oh my god like why even write this book it's just so over we are in such deep trouble and he says you know Dar if there's even one tiny organism in the middle of the Amazon that gets one more week on this planet because you wrote this book, then it's worth it. And that really, yeah. that was the, my first kind of aha moment with that moral obligation, yeah. you know, and, and going through the death and the loss of my best friend um, really brings all that into like emotional and spiritual focus for me that yeah, this, we are here for such a short amount of time. Nobody here gets out alive anyway. The second we're born, we're starting to die in, in a sense. We started that path. So how are we going to use that time? Yeah. And it's, it really comes around to that is a great gift of this time when we really accept the gravity of the crisis that we're in, that it brings into focus that whatever your spiritual practices are, it, it just all comes back around to that, but with an urgency and a necessity that we've never had before. And I think that can also be seen as a really, really big gift. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. What for you has opened up on the other side of this, what I'm calling the post doom door? Um, what gifts have you found? Uh, in addition, you've already mentioned a few of them, but just anything you want to say about, uh, what you've encountered on the other side of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? Well, I, I mostly just covered it in what I just shared, but, but another piece of it uh, has come from also what I've learned from working with my friend and colleague, Stan Rushworth, the, the, the teacher of Cherokee descent, who, you know, talks about those moral obligations and it really, he, another way he puts it is, how do you choose to comport yourself during this time? That, and that has to be an, a moral, ethical, personal decision that's not contingent upon anything that happens out there, irrespective of how fast the collapse continues to happen, or if this country gets locked down into fascism in a year from now, or irrespective of anything external, but how do we choose to be during this time? And you know, an analogy that 
I've used, I certainly didn't come up with it, but it's like being on the Titanic. We know that we've hit the iceberg. We know that we're in the middle of this giant ocean, largely by ourselves. We know how cold that water is. It looks bleak. Probably we're not going to make it. You know, there's, there's like this minuscule, tiny little chance that we could. And, you know, there's, some people that are like, well, all right, screw it. I'm going to go to the bar and just get hammered. And then there's some that are just going to go into barbarism and like raping and pillaging. And then there's those that are going to be helping the women and children and elderly and disabled onto the life rafts. And like, how else can I help? And how can I bring comfort to people? And we look out at the world today and we see all of that. Right. And so it's which, which of those people do we want to be? You know, really to, to make it really, really simple. And it really does come down to that. And and that was another gift of going helping my friend die. It's that cuts away all the bullshit. And it's like, look, you know, I love you and I care about you. And getting all my relations straight with everybody in my life, even the people that I don't like, and or I would say even especially the people that I don't like and especially the people that I'm closest to. And like knowing that my friend was going away and, and just, you don't leave anything unsaid. You know, you make sure everything's done, everything's clear. And that is another massive gift of this time. And you know what, if we end up getting longer than we expect, great. But either way, we're living the right way. How do we choose to comport ourselves? Yeah, yeah, amen. Wow. Well, Dora, the last question I have is simply relating to um, how you see remaining opportunities. Like, I'm just curious what you see as no longer possible realistically, but yet what still is possible? What's your sense of, of, of where we can make a difference still and where it's really futile to try? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm not going to talk about the climate collapse because I think most of your viewers probably understand like, you know, we're off the cliff. There's no stopping. There's no changing that, you know, we're, we're, we're probably going to go way beyond even the worst case IPCC projections. I'm assuming that this audience is aware of that. Um, But I think it's important to talk about also, you know, I know across the broader left, there's still, hope for new green deal or the right politician getting elected or drawdown and things like this. And the reality is if you, I think we have to be as honest with real politic, not just in the United States, but the broader West with a few countries exceptions aside, like some Scandinavian countries, Iceland, et cetera, and and New Zealand, et cetera. um, That there is a growing fascism and that if, if people think there's, going to be some kind of organized political movement in this country, or that Trump's somehow not going to stay, be in office a year from now, I think we need to get, be adults and be very honest and sober and look at what's happening, that we are essentially already in an authoritarian state and without getting into gory details, but the idea of like that there would actually be an organized movement big enough and powerful enough to challenge real power that wouldn't be put down violently like we see overseas. We've long since passed that in this country. And so I think with that in mind, coupled with how far along we are in the climate, runaway, abrupt climate catastrophe, that 
it again, okay, what we need to inform our decisions with all of that information. And then from that place, make decisions based on, okay, what can I do? What is most important in my heart to do? And, and so I guess I'll close this the way I have been closing a lot of my book talks, which is, you know, I, I share an indigenous story of basically listening to the earth. And it's a metaphor for essentially following your heart is what I've kind of lived into realizing that um, we're at this time where given everything I said about, you know, how cynical I am about political organization, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that um, each one of us needs to really get quiet and really listen humbly and see what comes up and then follow that. And in that way, earth is the great organizer, right? It's not you, it's not me, it's not out there, but it's literally coming up through us, each one of us, and we're all gonna get our own custom-made individual marching orders and to really listen and find ways to listen. I do it mostly in nature. Some people might do it meditating. Other people, it might come to them when they're painting. However you listen, really listen and then get that. And then commit your life fully regardless of the risk to doing that, you know? And that's the other thing is do what we're told, right? If we're being told that from the earth or however you wanna phrase that, then once you get that download or that upload, do what you're told. And, and the earth needs it and it's the right thing to do and it's the right way to live really in concert with all of life. And so that's, that's really how I've been trying to to live my life going forward now. And, and I'm really fortunate in that I do have the next project that I know that I'm gonna to get to work on. And then when that ends in a couple of years, if I'm still around, then um, you know, I'll be listening again. And exactly. starting all over. And, and um, that's, that's where we all are, you know? And so that's, that's at least, you know, just some of the ideas that come up and, kind of where I've been most recently and some of my, my understandings while, you know, all of this is happening around us. Yeah. Amen. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.